Our objective at the Association of Sporting Directors is to support, develop and connect our members who are spread out across the globe and all bring unique skills and experiences to the role of sporting director. In addition to our in-person events and our online networking sessions, we are really excited to bring you a brand new podcast series covering key topics generated by the membership and central to the future development of the sporting director role. Season one focuses on effective decision-making and is brought to you by Paul Musa, host of the What The Footy podcast series, who spoke to five ASD members, including Mark Cartwright, Zoran Cronetta, Matt Jordan, Greg Broughton and Dan Ashworth. Some fascinating insights from practitioners working at the heart of the professional game. Looking forward to these. Over to you, Paul. Welcome to the ASD podcast, Greg. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm good. Really good to be here with you. Thanks for having me. No, brilliant. Our theme for the year for the Association of Sporting Directors is, is effective decision making. So I want to know what is the toughest and most challenging decision that you've had to make in the role? I think the most important decision that any football club makes is the appointment of the first team coach or manager. Um, and obviously I was brought in at the uh, kind of halfway through that process. The club had already done the first round of interviews and I came in at the final stage. So I think probably strategically for the football club and for, for any large sporting institution, that, that is such a pivotal role that that's probably the most important one I've been involved in. Yeah, no, for sure. And and I think just sort of starting it off, Greg, you, you obviously joined Blackburn Rovers at quite an interesting time. So sort of during the transfer window, I believe the, the head coach, Yon, came in just after a week after you were appointed as well. Mm-hmm. You had a lot of rumours relating to different players and you had to bring in six players and, mm-hmm. and sort of six players left as well. Just sort of take me through the decision-making process and some of the tough calls that you had to make dr- during that period coming in at such a pivotal time uh, for the club. Yeah, well, I think when you make decisions, there's a couple of bits. Firstly, the more information you have, usually the better your decision is. Um, and secondly, I think if you can always align it to what your objective is, if you always go back to what your objective is, then you're going to make more right decisions than wrong decisions. And nobody gets everything right. You'll always probably make slightly more than slightly uh, slightly more uh, correct ones if, if if you're going in well prepared and, and like I say always going back to the objective of, of what you started or how what you want to start with so I think when we uh, appointed uh, Yondal as the head coach we had to go back to what the objective of what the owners wanted to do they wanted us to build a sustainable Premier League football club and we felt in order to do that we had to play football a certain way we had to really utilize our academy um, and those were a couple of the key factors that allowed us or, or, or guided us in the right direction of the final candidates. And then eventually, Yondal is our head coach. So that was the process. And then it comes on to recruitment exactly the same, because if you want to play that way, but also if you want to integrate players from your academy, you have to have a structure as to how you want to build your first team squad. Um, you have to have really good succession planning and knowledge of what's inside the building before you look out. And then you can get recruitment right. So um, if I use central midfielders as an example, we knew we had John Buckley and Lewis Travis in the building who both established pre- uh, championship footballers with, with the potential to go on and play in the Premier League. Um, we knew we needed another central midfielder because Rothwell had left the club, who was an integral, integral part of what the club had achieved last year. Um, but also looking inside the building, we knew we had Adam Wharton and Jake Garrett, who not only had done well last season, but 
during pre-season were excellent for us. So what we felt was we couldn't sign somebody, a 27, 28-year-old central midfielder who on a three-year contract, probably on a very high wage, who would then be expecting to play every single game with Lewis and John in the building and with Adam and Jake knocking on the door. So it kind of took us in the direction of that a loan would be a perfect solution to it. Um, we knew um, that with Tyler Morton, he'd had six to eight starts for Liverpool last year. Jurgen Klopp had trusted him, started in big games, again, including AC Milan away. The data we had on him, the scouting reports on him, the character references we had on him were all positive. And more importantly, Liverpool felt that the Blackburn Rovers were was a really good place for him to continue his development. So we had the backing of Liverpool as well in terms of that. So that was kind of the process and that kind of gives you some of the strategic thinking behind that signing. No, that's that's a really useful example because I think just, just sort of breaking that down even a little bit more. How much of that sort of initial first sort of week or two weeks or three weeks was it for you in terms of just assessing and looking around the building and really sitting down with different people across different departments? I know you cover different departments and not just recruitment. How much it, for you was it a fact-finding exercise before then starting to implement strategies and then actually start to put things in place? Of course, yeah. Well, I had to try and do a lot of it before I came into the club. And bear in mind, there wasn't a huge amount of turnaround between uh, me finding out about the position and starting. But I just had to overload as much as I could, watch as many games as I could, first team games, under 21 games, under 18 games, to really take in a, a, as much information. And I know Jon and Remy had done the same. Uh, Remy's Jon Dahl's assistant. They'd done the same in, in preparing to come in the building. But then, like you said, it, there were some crazy hours in, in, in June and early July uh, both with the staff and with the players, we had a great opportunity to go after uh, away after a couple of weeks to Portugal, which gave us a lot of uh, off-pitch time with both the playing staff and, and, the, and the coaching and support staff to really get to know them. And I managed to have one-to-one -one meetings, I think, with 26 of the of the full-time staff at, at, at our training ground and just asked them what they felt, uh, got their opinion. They, they'd been in the building a lot longer than I had and they would probably know the answer a lot a lot better than I would do. So just try to take on as much information on board from as many different people. Jon and Remy did exactly the same process with each of the players, had one-on-one -on -one meetings with all of the players. Um, and that kind of led us to where we wanted to go, both in the transfer window and then beyond that as well. No, certainly. And obviously, just as I sort of mentioned there, you, you cover sort of six different areas. Just, just sort of talk to me about how the role was sort of defined to you, what the ownership and Steve and the board were sort of really looking for, because as we know, the, the role is defined differently from club to club. How, how is it defined yes, yeah. at Blackburn Rovers? Yeah, well, what the owners asked me to do is to look after the sporting side of the football club. So uh, we have a model where Steve Waggett, who's a very, very experienced uh, chief executive, looks after the business side of the football club. He also sits on the board of directors. And then my side is to look after the sporting side, of which, as you correctly said, the six pillars. And my job is to support the six heads of department for each of those pillars um, and also to ensure that the pillars are joined up as well. Because if you're talking sports science, for example, most clubs will have a sports science department in, in the first team and also a sports science department uh, in the academy. And if they're a joined up club that has a, a ladies section as well, then they might even have a sports science section within that part of the club. And my job is to try and make sure that the pillars are, are, are seamless and run from top to bottom so that we have the same strategy and the same objectives running all the way through the club. Um, and my job is obviously to support, as I've said, those those six heads of department and, and ensure that they can fulfil their role and make sure they can support their staff accordingly. And also that with succession planning, we know 
who the next head of staff might be if one of ours has another opportunity to move uh, to, a, to a different opportunity. No, for sure. And obviously we've seen over the last sort of couple of years how uh, technical teams across sort of performance and, and sports science and medicine have, have grown uh, drastically and grown quite a lot. I see that you're looking to to, to hire a head of data scouting, also a head of European scouting. J just sort of talk to me in terms of how, how, how you all sort of work together, how often are you meeting, how often are you assessing things and monitoring the progress of, of, uh, of the metrics that you set? Yeah. Well, I think with the recruitment department, we, we've had to rebuild that from scratch. Uh, we had John Parkin as the head of recruitment, uh, a really, really good, experienced scout, knows every single player in European football at the top level of his game. And he made it very clear to me when I started that he was very, very loyal uh, to Tony and the previous management team. And he felt that when his contract expired at the end of June, he would use that opportunity to move on. And, and I completely understand and admire that loyalty. So we had to bring a head of recruitment in and we wanted a strategic leader there who both had leadership experience, but also uh, recruitment experience and understood the, the mechanisms of talent ID and how to identify young players and plan pathways for them. Um, and we brought Gus Williams in from the Welsh FA. We ran a really, really thorough process uh, for all of the roles we, we've done. I haven't brought in anybody that I've worked with before. Uh, for all of the roles, we've, we've looked to bring in fresh ideas, fresh experience, because I think that's the only way of, of you, you progressing yourself. Otherwise, you just end up creating an echo chamber with people reporting to you what you've known in the past. And, and, and you never grow either as an individual or as an organisation. And then with Gus, we sat down and said, right, this is what we wanted it to look like. We had a very unfortunate incident over the summer when Carl, who was one of our, our recruitment analysts, really sadly passed away. Um, so we had to look and reshape the, the, the recruitment department almost from scratch. Tom Sutton had come in just before I'd started. And we asked Tom with his experience at, at Oxford United and at Stoke City to become our head of UK uh, recruitment. We felt um, that we needed uh, more European knowledge than we currently had in the, in the club. So we advertised that role. And Luke has joined us uh, from uh, Hibernian to take that role on. And then the final role was the head of data scouting um, and Lewis has come in from uh, Swansea City in that role. So that's almost the uh, recruitment department complete. But then what we also felt was the head of academy uh, recruitment, Michael, uh, really experienced recruiter, uh, had spent a lot of time at Everton, as well as being at Blackburn Rovers many years ago. We wanted to get him working closer. So three days a week now, he's in with uh, the rest of the recruitment team working as one, one unit. And then the final piece of the jigsaw was to bring a uh, head of emerging talent uh, into the club because we felt the players aged 16 to 20 was absolutely vital if we were to fulfil our, our objective. And that's a post that we are in the final stage of the interview uh, process for now. Uh, we, had a, we have a head of data, Hannah, a really, really talented individual who, who brings great quality to the club. She also works on a consultancy basis uh, with the Belgian FA. Um, and obviously that piece of, of work is joined. So, so she works alongside or she oversees as well uh, the head of data scouting. Um, and Stuart Jones, our, our academy manager, also the head of emerging talent, also reports into him as well as our head of recruitment so that we can try and get things working collaboratively. Lad, I think that's super useful. And, and, and you sort of mentioned at the start as well that the vision is to sustainably get back into the Premier League. Just, just sort of talk to me about the strategies that will underpin... Blackburn getting back into the Premier League because it almost seems just just sort of looking at things that the success of the academy and bringing academy players into 
into the first team is what's going to help to drive drive the club there. How do you get everyone to buy into in into giving uh, academy players first team minutes? Yeah, well, I think when um when I did my pro license, one of the tutors on the on the course was Alistair Campbell, and he talked about his time uh, with New Labour when they were trying to win power, and then when they eventually did win power, and he talked to me about or we talked to the group about three different things. First, the objective, then your strategy, and then your tactics, the pillars that underpin that. So, like I said, I think when I came in, the, the, the owners had a very clear objective of what they wanted the club to be. And we had to build the strategy, and then we're putting the tactics in place now that underpin that. Um, and, and the strategy we felt was we wanted to be uh, a really, really uh, high-level developer of people within our club both the coaching staff, the playing staff, and the support staff. Um, development doesn't stop at 18 or at 21. It goes all the way through. So we have various different tactics that help us to develop people. And obviously the academy plays a huge part in that. Academies, especially Category 1 academies, are expensive to run. And there aren't many clubs outside the Premier League that have a Category 1 academy. We're one of those. Uh, it, it costs us about £3.5 a year to run that academy. The Premier League are driving up expectations for Category 1, so that, that cost will rise to almost £4 million over the next two to three years in line with Premier League requirements. And we have to have a net return on that. So th there's no point a, a club the size of Blackburn Rovers spending that much money on an academy if we're not going to then ask it to produce young players uh, for our first team. So integrating the academy into that strategy and the various tactics that underpin that was absolutely key for us. Um, and, and we feel that will give us a, a, a different way to try and beat the opposition who all have similar objectives to us. No, for sure. And, and and how sort of easy was it getting the manager to sort of buy into that, into that sort of strategy and buy into that philosophy? And, and I think linked to that, how big it was it as well in terms of securing Ash Phillips and Adam Wharton, who are highly rated young players on, on long-term contracts? Well, I think the first piece of work is you have to recruit a manager, head coach, who, who really believes in that, probably who's demonstrated that in the past um, and has a similar belief in terms of how you can build a football club. Because if you bring a manager in and then try and convince him that's the way to go forward, it's probably going to fail because eventually he'll go back to what he, he truly believes in. So I think that was a key part of the, uh, of the recruitment, post, um, recruitment process for our head coach. And I believe uh, with Yondar, we, we brought in somebody who really, really believes in the development of, of, of footballers. Um, and I think one of the key tests for that was during the transfer window, we had two things happen within 24 hours. So um, it was August. I think we were two games into the season and Scott Wharton, who's one of our central defenders, put, picked up a small injury and was going to be out for two to three weeks. And on the same day, we were trying to sign uh, Seth Vandenberg from Liverpool on loan. And that loan was put on hold at the time, it eventually collapsed, but it was put on hold because of injuries within Liverpool's camp. And we were going into West Brom that weekend with without uh, a back four to be able to put out on the field or established back four to put out on the field. So I sat down with Jan on the Friday. The game was on the Sunday and asked him, right, what are your thoughts? How are we going to deal with this? Um, my expectations might be that, well, could we play one of our def more defensively minded midfielders back a little further? Could we tuck a full back inside to cover? But Jon was very, very clear. I'm, I'm going to play Ash Phillips. And I was like, OK, are you sure? Is that definitely what you feel you want to do? And he's like, yeah, I'm here to develop players. He's a central defender. He's the next one knocking on the line. He deserves this opportunity to play. And he put him in there and he played 
against West Brom and then he had five six starts in total in the championship and has done really really well hasn't let anybody down because he's because of his size and his physical stature you forget the boy's still 17 years old um we he still can't wear us our sponsor on the front of our shirt because we're sponsored by a vaping company he still has to have his own changing room at training he can't go in with the senior pros and correctly so because of his age so all of these things you you, you have to bear in mind um but i think it goes back to like i said earlier it's going back to what your objective is and then recruiting a head coach who believes in that because then i i, I sometimes talk about creating sliding door moments that was one of those moments those doors could have shut and ash might not have got that opportunity and and then that hope might answer the second part of your question because then i think all the young players their parents their representatives are looking and saying well everybody says that everybody comes in here and says the academy is important you're going to get a chance but the proof is in the pudding you have to back those words up with actions and that was it that was the action and I felt once Ash had had that opportunity we were always going to be in a great position to sign him despite the opportunity from huge Premier League clubs and the really enormous short-term gains he had from signing for one of those I felt if we could really offer him an opportunity to develop here he would stay at Blackburn Rovers. Uh, Adam Wharton was a little bit different uh, with Adam we talked to him uh, very early on and said our job by the end of this season is to make sure you've got a similar amount of experience that Tyler had had at Liverpool last year so that this time next year we're talking about you being a, a, a championship player um, and, and he's obviously exceeded those, those expectations and, and, and gone very very close to the starting 11 and has had many many starts already this season. Um, Adam's obviously uh, from the area a, a lifelong Blackburn Rovers supporter his brother's already in the team so so there was obviously already that emotional tie to the club so I, I, he'd already signed a professional contract and, and we sat down and come to a very easy agreement with both him and his representatives now for him to sign a five-year contract with the football club again despite Premier League interest and it was great to see both him and Ash feature for England under-19s in the last international window. No that's super useful and, and I think a, a constant theme for yourself Greg across your career is that that whole idea around youth development, academy development and, and working with young players. Just sort of talk to me about the, the lessons and the learnings that you've taken from your time at, at Rushton and also at Norwich and, and Bodo Glimt as well into, into the role of Blackburn. Yeah, look, I've, I've made so many mistakes along my journey. And I think if you can reflect on those and learn from them, then you hopefully don't make as many of them and repeat them as often as you do. But I think in terms of the, the lessons learned around youth development, I think the first one is, is never put a, a glass ceiling in place that might block young people's development. I've worked at so many clubs where the head coach and the first team coaching staff have said that player isn't ready. Um, and you know what? They're always right. A player is never ready. But they will never, ever be ready unless you give them that opportunity. Uh, I sometimes talk about the opportunity Curtis Davis had, at, again, one of my clubs I worked at previously at, at, at Luton Town. And even though this was before I joined the club, the, the story was very, very clear a year or so later when I went in that Curtis was a third year scholar at the time, under 19, and wasn't anywhere near the first team group. Uh, Luton had a lot of injuries and Joe Kinnear played him in, a, in one of the Johnston Paint Trophy games and he did okay. But then the rest of the week, Joe and the Luton coaching staff had spent a lot of time trying to bring a lone player in, trying to bring cover in, and hadn't managed to do that. And Curtis played again in the league and did okay. 
and he kept doing okay and okay and within a very very short period of time he was sold to West Brom for 3.5 million but was Curtis ready to play in the first team the answer was probably no if you're looking at it was he had he had 100 games of experience did he understand them how to deal with clever movement or picking up the second ball when it drops and all of these things you only learn by playing in the first team environment no but the only way to learn is to be given that opportunity. And don't get me wrong, I'm not naive enough to think that everybody will go in there and fly or do well. But sometimes you have to go through that struggle to get to the next level. So I think that that's probably the biggest learning I've had working, working in youth development is don't put a glass ceiling. Uh, never put a, a limit on where you think people can get to, but create opportunities for, for people to have success. No, because it's, it's really fascinating because youth development and, and blood and young players into the first team is always a bit of a of a conundrum because it's a bit of an owner's dream because you can you can work and develop players. It doesn't really cost them as it does in terms of getting someone in externally and bringing them into the first team. They can sell them for a profit and, and recuperate some money back into the club. But at the same time, it takes time and it requires patience as well. So how how, how do you really communicate that and try and educate them to to yeah. understand the the benefits and the the kind of um, toss-up that you kind of have? Yeah, well, I, I sometimes talk about that there's four really easy ways to do it. But for me, they're cheats. They're not real ways of doing it. But I guarantee if you do them, you you can get young players in the team with no problem. So firstly, be bottom of the league. Because if you're bottom of the league and things are desperate, people just throw young players in to try and make a change. So an example of this would be at Russian and Diamonds. We were bottom of the league. Simeon Jackson, Lee Tomlin and a few others all got thrown in and, and built wonderful careers on the back of that opportunity. But had we been top of the league, they might not have had that 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 chance. Secondly, have an injury crisis, as I've already discussed with, with Curtis and also with Ash Phillips, maybe at, at Blackburn Rovers. Um, third, can you, uh, if, if you look at um, a change of manager, if, if a manager changes and a caretaker manager goes in place for five or six game, games and wants to make a, an imprint on, on that team and leave a memory or, or have a chance to get a job, sometimes he throws young players in. And we saw that at, at Norwich with James Madison. And then finally, if you have a transfer collapse, then you never know my, what might happen. And we had that at Buda Glimt. Uh, the deal was done with Jens Peter Hauger to move to Circle Bruges. Um, COVID hit. He wasn't able to travel to Belgium for his medical. He kept training in pre-season, kept training. Obviously, pre-season was a huge one because of COVID and got closer and closer to the team. And within six months, he'd been sold to AC Milan for six times the figure. But But none of those were by design. They were all by accident. So... In, in terms of design of how you can do that, I think the most important thing is employ a head coach who believes in it. But then secondly, have a squad design that doesn't block it. Victor Orta talks at Leeds United uh, about having only 18 core players in your first team and then the rest of the squad is supported by youngsters knocking on the door. Uh, our model at Blackburn Rovers is to have 22 first team players and then we have six who are training with the first team every single day. And what we've seen from, from employing that model is that both Ash and Adam have now made the step out of those six into the 22. And then my job to, is to ask the academy manager, right, who are the next two? Which two are now going to step into that six to be given that opportunity? Um, and, and the academy have to be challenged to ensure that there's always players ready to do that. No, for sure. And then also as well, like in, in your time at different clubs, you would have worked with different sporting directors and directors of football. What are the kind of key lessons and learnings that you've taken from working with people like Stuart Weber and uh, and so forth? 
Yeah, well, my, my crossover with Stuart was very short. I was only with him at, for six months at Norwich City. But what he tried to bring in at the club and what he's successfully done since then is to have an integrated club. And and this isn't a criticism of anybody, myself included, who was working previously within within Norwich City, because at that time, Norwich were diff in a difficult position. They were trying to establish themselves as a Premier League club. And obviously, Paul Lambert did brilliantly, kept the team in the, kept the club in the Premier League. Chris Hewton then came in, also kept the club in the Premier League. And if you're trying to do that, it's really, really hard to put young players in the team. The job at the club, uh, the job the club were doing at the time was to try and build the value in their first team squad, to try and throw resources in there to become a sustainable Premier League football club that way. And you know what, like I said, they had three years in the bounce on the Premier League. But at the time, we were also building the academy. Category one football was, or, or EPPP was, was, was very new in 2012. We were trying to build a category one academy. We were trying to build a recruitment program in London to allow us to bring young players in. We were trying to build a European recruitment pl plan to bring young players in. So at that stage, um, maybe we hadn't evolved enough to be able to do that. But what you look back at, when, when we won the FA Youth Cup in 2013, and you had the Murphy brothers come through that, you had Harry Toffolo come through that, you had Cameron McGeehan come through that, you had Carlton Morris come through that, and all five of those players have gone on to play in the Premier League and the Championship. And there's other players in that squad who've gone on and knocked on the door as well. But, but what Stuart's been able to do at Norwich is to be able to join that process up. And with Daniel Farker, employed a coach who believed in young players, gave Max Ahrens a chance, gave Jamal Lewis a chance, gave Ben Godfrey a chance, uh, gave Adam Eder a chance, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so he, he was able to then allow young players to knock on the door. And by then the academy had maybe evolved far, far enough to have a regular supply of, of top category one players who were ready to make that step. No, for sure. We'll we'll get on to E Triple P in, in in a short second, but just even link to that as well, Greg. One thing I've sort of noticed about yourself is you you seem like someone who's who communication feels like something that's really important to you, and having that communication dialogue with the fans. Why is it important to you, and how does it kind of fit into your strategy? Because I think it's it's a really important thing to to kind of master in terms of having that directness to the fans to be able to communicate the strategy to them. Yeah, well, I think the Blackburn Rovers fans would probably be a little bit critical and say that could be even more often, as all football clubs do. Uh, and I've tried to be clear to them. I'll, I'll try and communicate really clear with them going into transfer windows and on the back of transfer windows. But ultimately, it's not me they want to hear from after every game. That's the head coach, and correctly so, or the captain in the pre-match press interview, because they're the people in the spotlight. They're the ones who have to cross the white line on a match day, whereas I'm sat very comfortably up in the seats uh just watching and I, that's all i can do on a match day I, I have no no influence and correctly so on that day but i think in um support communicating at all levels not just to the supporters but also to the board of directors to the owners and, and to your team of staff the people who are working with you is absolutely key because i think the only way that you can overachieve is to have everybody pulling in one direction and you know what that that's not easy because look we all want to win every single game but what we mustn't do is get carried away too much on the highs and also we mustn't get too distraught on the lows uh, on Wednesday night we played West Ham away in the League Cup um, and won on penalties does and, and with that was with our second 11 on the pitch because we chose to rest our first 11 for the league game this weekend 
does that mean that we are miles better than West Ham or even at the same level as West Ham? No, they're an established Premier League football club with established international footballers, some of the very best players in Europe in their team and an amazing management staff, fantastic stadium, 65,000 people regularly. But it shows that when we're in the right place, we can be competitive and our young players can step up. Yesterday was the opposite. Yesterday we played our local rivals Burnley away and nobody was more disappointed when, when we lost the game 3-0 and deservedly lost the game 3-0. Does that mean we're miles away from Burnley? No, even though they've got parachute money seven or eight times the income we have, which they're using obviously firstly to reinvest into the squad and also to service their debt for buying the club. That doesn't mean that we're miles behind them. On our day, we feel we can be competitive with them. We sit only a few points behind them in the league table right now. So you have to just, although you leave and last, the rest of yesterday was an absolute write-off because of the result. And even this morning, you wake up almost hungover because of how painful that defeat is. You have to move on from that quickly because we have to remember the progress we've made so far this year. Um, we have to, we felt going into the international break, we wanted to be in contact with the playoffs and the top two in order then to have three or four really good training weeks to, to set for the second half of the season. And we wanted to keep continuing to focus on our long-term performance. And um, if we do those things, and if you remember, it goes back to how we started the conversation about always remembering and going back to your objective. If you can do that, it makes the the the, the defeat slightly more palatable. Although I, I still have to stay, say that uh, I'm looking forward to the return game because I think we owe them one and we owe our supporters a much, much better performance after after yesterday. No, that's awesome. I'm going to let you grab a quick drink before we go into part two, because I'm conscious of the fact that we've been talking for quite a while now and allow the listeners to hear from one of our ASD partners. Hey, hope you're enjoying the episode. It's Darren from Executives in Sport. We help football clubs identify and attract the very best sporting directors and performance professionals globally. Visit eisg.com for more information. And remember to follow and subscribe to the ASD podcast on Spotify, Apple or your chosen platform. Now back to the episode. Great to have you back for part two, Greg. Um, I think some of the points you sort of mentioned, obviously, with the focus on, on academy football, obviously over here in this country, we have EPPP. Just sort of talk to me about what the model was over there in Norway and how that sort of compares to EPPP. Mm. Well, they have a classification process in Norway where your academy is graded. So that bit would be very, very similar to the, to the auditing system that happens in the UK. But I think the two biggest differences is first, the academy football doesn't start till 13, under 13. So um, your, your, your foundation phase, your nines to 12s are staying in grassroots football. Um, clubs still work with those players and they might come in and train one or two nights a week, but, but they stay with their grassroots clubs till 13. And I think the other big difference is the second team, uh, which would be an under 19 team or an under 21 team would be the equivalent here in the UK, play in the senior leagues. So they would play in the second or third division of Norwegian football. They're not allowed to get promoted into the top two leagues uh, in Norway, but you can play in the senior level there. So, so you're exposing your young players to senior football at a very, very young age as well, which I think is also really, really beneficial. And what's, what's been your thoughts on um, on EPPP? Because I believe it's sort of been, what, 10 years or so since it's... Since yeah, it's 10, years, 10, years, yeah. 10 years exactly. And I think it's been, um, it, 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 it's done everything it promised to do. And I think Jed Roddy and, and the team that, that put that in place 
Uh, Neil Saunders still at the Premier League now. Mark Cannon at, at, at the FA of Ireland have done an amazing job in terms of putting a really strong framework and giving really clear guidelines. They've allowed the academy systems in, in the UK to become really professionalised, build really good workforces, develop coaching teams as well, young coaches who have now themselves progressed onto management at the highest levels of the game. Um, and I think it's been it's been revolutionary for, for British football. And I think a lot of the success that the England team has had in the last two major championships are built upon the foundations of EPPP. And hopefully we'll see that continue going to the World Cup now. No, for sure. And just, just sort of talk to me about the challenges of, of, of being at Blackburn and competing. You obviously mentioned uh, Burnley, who obviously recently just relegated in their first year of having parachute payments. And then we have obviously Sheffield United who in their second year of ha having parachute payments. Obviously, I know that there's current, current talks of the Premier League and the NFL about sort of having a new deal and changing things. How, how, how sort of difficult is the challenge of competing with, with these clubs that are effectively dropping down with established Premier League players and have the resources to, to effectively just jump back straight into the Premier League? Yeah, well, as part of the Norwich squad that won uh, promotion in 2015-16 um, after being relegated on parachute money, it would be hypocritical of me to criticise that too much. But what, what I do know is it creates an enormously uneven playing field. Um, the, the, the championship in terms of having usually six clubs at the moment, five, because obviously Fulham were able to bounce straight back last year, who were earning five to six times what any of the other clubs in terms of the TV money, um, creates a, a very uneven playing field. And also it encourages, in, in, in my uh, opinion bad practice from other clubs who try and overspend and overachieve to get to the promised land um, and I think the proposition that's on the table right now from the Premier League uh, obviously still to be negotiated with the Football Association and the Football League but I think the Football League are pushing for the same it is is to have enormous reductions in the parachute money and have more prize money pumped into the Football League which you get rewarded depending where, where you finish um, because I think that's the only way we can level the playing field and try and protect our clubs, which are such vital parts of our community, and protect uh, those clubs from, from owners who wish to, to really overspend in order to, to reach the Premier League and to try and encourage clubs to do it in a more sustainable way. So um, our wage bill sits uh, in the bottom third of wage bills in the Championship. If you take the, prem, uh, the, the um, clubs who, who receive the parachute payments out of the way, um, including our, our, our local rivals, as you mentioned, then, then we probably sit halfway up that table. So uh, we have to plan accordingly for that. And we have to be really, 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 really creative in terms of how we do things. We have to recruit really intelligently. We have to have a head coach who believes in the process and we have to really use our academy well. And those are the three things. Those are three of our pillars that we think will give us real clarity on how we progress. Um, I think one of the other real things is having a really good understanding of what winning means to Blackburn Rovers. Does it mean winning at any costs or does it mean winning without the cost to other people? Because I think what you're seeing now is a huge shift um, in the mindset of, of, of marginal gains and this absolute drive to win at any cost, because I think you're seeing various scandals in the background, ball tampering in cricket, bloodgate in rugby, this horrific scandal in gymnastics, both in, in America and in the UK where winning has been put ahead of anything, including uh, the welfare of, of people working with us. So I think we have to have a definition of what winning looks like for, for Blackburn Rovers. And, and for me, 
that's very clear clearly it's just improving our performance every single day and in every single month and every single year because look last year we were second at christmas we ended up finishing eighth in the table we know we're not coming from a million miles away but also we lost six key players last summer we've had to rebuild slightly with a new head coach and a new way of playing so it's going to take a little bit of time but we believe if we keep improving day on day week on week year on year then we will get to where we want to get to in, in the medium term no, for sure, because I think some of the interesting points that you mentioned there is, I think I looked in the the average wages to revenue ratio in the championship is at one hundred and twenty five percent, which is mm. which is massive compared to to what it is in the Premier League and some of the mm. rules that UEFA brought in. So definitely, there's pressure for sustainability within the game and particularly particularly within the championship. Yeah, definitely, and I think when you see those those ratios in the Premier League, you have to remember that the TV money enormously reduces that ratio straight away. Um, but look, UEFA uh, guidelines are that, they, that that gets reduced down to 70% over a period of time. Um, I think 60 to 70% is a sustainable model for, for business and for football. Um, but I think the only way to allow clubs to do that, as I said, is to, is to enormously affect the way that parachute payments are made, uh, allow clubs to be more creative in how they bring income into their club, um, and allow uh, revenues to rise in order to ensure um, that, that footballers can continue uh, to, to want to play in the UK. It's that it's the, every, every player in the world wants to come and play in the UK. The Championship is the sixth biggest league in world football. And we have to try not to damage that product as well, um, whilst making it more sustainable. One of the key buzzwords that we always hear within football is alignment. Just sort of talk to me about how you've understood alignment how you've sort of seen structure and alignment sort of mm. changes you've progressed through through different roles uh, across your career yeah well, i think the the best experience and the biggest learning i've had from that was was my experience in, in norway as you mentioned with buddha glimpse so when i went in there the club had a wonderful structure very very clear objective in place they wanted to make north norwegians proud um North Norwegian clubs, of which there are only two professional clubs in the north of Norway, Budaglimt and Tromsø, uh, weren't allowed to compete in the national leagues till the early 1970s. Budaglimt went in and within two or three years won the cup in 1975, so really became the flag bearers for North Norwegian football. And you must remember at this stage as well, as a North Norwegian, if you were travelling to Oslo, you weren't allowed to stay in guest houses. There was huge discrimination against them. So, so they had a very clear identity built around making North Norwegians proud, and they had a very, very clear strategy of doing that. They wanted to um, bring in young players from their academy um, and give them an opportunity to, to, to develop through the club and move on to the top leagues in Europe. Uh, and obviously, based upon that, along with lots of other wonderful things happening in the background at, at, the, at the football club, we were in a position where we were able to really, really overachieve because everybody was pulling in that one direction at that stage. Um, so when I went in at the end of 2017, 2018, we were back in the Norwegian top division, just stayed in the division by the skin of our teeth. But the club, again, didn't panic, stayed with it, stayed with the head coach. It was a wonderful head coach. Um, they, they could see the progression was happening, even though some of the performances weren't easy on the eye. You could see the underlying data and metrics that underpin those. You could see the progress that was being made off the field. And then 2019, we were able to finish second in the league. Then two league titles on the bounce and again yesterday uh, finishing second in the league again so finishing the top two uh, for four years in a row and I've been to a European quarter-final I've knocked Celtic out of the out of the uh, conference league uh, 
humiliated Mourinho's Roma when they came to town last November and have gone toe-to-toe with Arsenal and PSV, although just fell short in both of those games this year, but have given a really good account of themselves based upon North Norwegian talent and young players from the academy with a really clear vision and an alignment and not wavering from that, not panicking when things weren't going right, as I mentioned in 2018, staying with the strategy, staying with the objectives uh, and really believing. And, and if you do that, I really think that that's one of the secrets to overachievement. The final question we ask mm. guests on the ASD podcast is if you could go back and give Greg advice when he started off at Rushton and Diamond or when he started off at Blackburn Rovers in the summer, what would you go back and tell him? That's a really good question. Um, I, I think my my biggest learning, if I went all the way back to Rushton and Diamonds, would be just don't be in a rush to get to where you want to get to. Just enjoy the journey because every single day of that journey, and there's been some really, really tough times uh, at Rushton and Diamonds when when um, the Dr. Martins, uh, the Dr. Martins owners owned Rushton and Diamonds and when they pulled out of the ownership and the money dried up and we hurtled back out of the Football League, that was a really, really tough time and many, many people's livelihoods were, were threatened by that. And again, at Luton Town, joining them in, in the championship and then having three successive relegations because of financial irregularities dropping out of the Football League and having to go to tribunals to try and retain the registration of young players. There were some really, really tough times there. But I think what you don't realise until you've been through that is each of those gives you lessons in life. Each of those things allow you to grow as a person. Um, And I I certainly wouldn't be sat here where I sit today with the wonderful opportunity I've got at Blackburn Rovers without some of those struggles and some of the lessons I learned at, at, at all of the clubs, as well as the highs, because there were enormous high moments as well. If I think back to Luton Town and minus 30 points, almost relegated out of the Football League at that stage and going to the new Wembley in the Johnston Paint final trophy with 45,000 Luton supporters and beating Scunthorpe, who were top of League One, 3-2 with a goal by Claude Knapka in extra time. Uh, what a wonderful occasion that was. And Nick Harper was very, very generous to allow me to be on the bench that day uh, and as a Luton Town supporter to be on a bench at Wembley uh, in a final in front of 45,000 will be a memory that lives with me for, for the rest of my life. No, I love that, Greg. Thank you for your time. Thank you for coming on the ASD podcast. You're doing an amazing job at Blackburn Rovers and wishing you guys the best of luck for the rest of the season. Thank you very much, Paul. It's really good to speak to you this evening. Hey, it's Andy from Zone 7. In the time it takes to read out this ad, our proprietary AI could have analysed your training and game data, informed you which of your players were at increased risk of injury, and suggested how your staff could reduce that risk by simulating optimal workload strategies for the week ahead. If you want to find out more about how it does this, visit zone7.ai and click Request a Demo to start up a conversation. Now, back to the episode.